0: I-94 on Lumpin' Radio.
1: Welcome, everybody, once again to another edition of I-94 here on Lumpin' Radio. As always, I am Mr. Jamie Trecker, and I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. morning, Jamie. Got a good show for you today, folks. Today we are joined by the editor Veronica Watson. She is coming to us by the miracle of FaceTime from Pennsylvania. She has edited a new book, called The Short Stories of Frank Yerby. We're gonna talk about who Frank Yerby was and why this means anything at all. I'm holding the cover up, but because this is radio and not television, you can't see it, but I can promise you it exists. It is real. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Veronica, let's start with the beginning and talk a little bit about who uh, Frank Yerby was. Uh, As it happens, uh, before the show started, my mother, who is also uh, a mid-list artist, wrote to me and said, you know, my my grandmother and grandfather really loved the stories of Frank Yerby. And, you know, that might strike some people as unusual that two Scotch-Irish immigrants uh, in the the 1940s (laughs) might be reading Frank's work. But Frank actually was an incredibly popular author, and it it might not have been super well known that he was black or African-American during that time. Uh, he wrote what, something like thirty-three novels. Am yeah. I correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, That's correct. Three of them were made into movies, including *The Foxes of Harrow*, which is a movie uh, I've actually seen. That was with Rex Harrison and Maureen O'Hara. It was Oscar nominated. Uh, he sold a million copies of the book that movie was based on, uh, and he two other of his you know books were made into into movies as well. So he was a fairly successful, long-lasting author. Uh, that did deeply, you know, researched kind of historical romances and historical fiction. But today his name is not necessarily uh, on the front of people's minds. Veronica, can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about who who Frank was,
2: why he was so important, and why is it that we don't know that much about him today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I love to talk about Frank because I think his story tells us so much about the politics of Black writing, at a particular time in our history. So he was born on September 5th, 1916, and uh, he had a 33 year writing career. I mean, if you can imagine uh, the endurance that it takes to write that. Um, he wrote about a novel every year to year and a half. He had one published for most of his career, so he was incredibly prolific. Um, and it doesn't surprise me to hear that your mother and grandmother are familiar with his work, because uh, when he started writing in the 1940s, had his first novel, The Foxes of Harrow, as you just mentioned, published in 1946, uh, Frank was actually one of the most well-known and most anticipated writers of his time. Uh, People looked forward to his novels. They were sort of eagerly chomping for them to come out and for them to get them. And they passed them around and they read them together. So um, of a generation, he was incredibly well-known. And you're absolutely right. Many of his readers, most of whom were white readers, did not know that he was a Black writer. Um, And I think that there was some... um, intentionality behind that. I think that of the time, people were concerned that he wouldn't sell as well or be as well-received if people knew his race. But he was also uh, just a bit of... a rebel in the regard that he did not necessarily want to be identified in any particular way by any racial category because he thought that they were all pretty much trash, right? He didn't believe in the concept. And so he um, really didn't make a big deal of announcing uh, a racial identity because it's not how he thought of himself and he didn't think it was terribly important about his work. so that's a bit of who he was, and it's also a bit of an explanation for why he is not as well-known now, because the reason that Black writers from the 1940s, 50s, and perhaps well into the 60s were known at all is because they were celebrated as Black writers. Um, and Frank didn't write what we traditionally understand as Black literature. He wrote what we now know of as white life literature, which meant that Wrote Most of his novels were written about white characters. Um, It wasn't that they didn't have black characters in them. It's just that black characters weren't typically the central characters of his work. And so black uh, critics and scholars didn't really review him. They didn't talk about him. They didn't you know, sort of promote him in various ways. Um, he also didn't get a lot of play in terms of being taught in academic circles. And so a lot of his literature, once the the period of it passed, uh, simply went out of publication. Uh, But he was being read all over the world. He wasn't just a U.S. phenomenon. So his novels were uh, republished in many, many languages and countries. And so he had a wide, varied readership. But many people simply don't know him now because the way that we keep those names alive and going is by teaching them and talking about them. And it didn't happen.
3: Veronica, I wanted to ask you a question about Frank's Chicago connection. So I learned about Mr. Yerby from a book that we had we had another author on, I believe it was Chicago Renaissance, was that mm-hmm. what, yeah. by Lisa Olson. And yeah. she mentioned uh, Yerby as part of the WPA um with Algren and Richard Wright, and I believe was Gwendolyn Brooks part of the WPA as well? Yeah. And yeah, I think it was. So I did a little research. I had never heard of him. And I picked up the Writers in Revolt, which was a, an anthology from Anvil that came out here in Chicago. But he was in Chicago for a brief period and attended University of Chicago, correct, and then he went broke? That's correct. And from what I understand, he he, <laughs> he couldn't afford to stay, so he went back south.
2: Yes, yes, so he, he was working um, there and he was part of the WPA um, for a very short time, but it is where he made some important connections in terms of other writers who supported him as a writer, to to really validate that as a career path. So, you know, coming out of the um, Great Depression and into the 1940s, times are hard for everybody, but they were especially difficult for African-American writers who were trying to make their living in that way. And Frank hadn't really broken through uh, those circles. So he was working all over the place. He worked in an auto plant. He uh, worked as a teacher uh, in several different institutions. Um, And so when he moved back south, he actually returned to his teaching career that he felt was a little more stable and where he had some different kinds of connections and kind of understood the culture a little bit better and how to move in it and and support his family, his growing family, as a matter of fact. So um, his time there in Chicago was short, but I think it did make an impact on him and his commitment to pursuing writing as a career, as opposed to really kind of thinking, well, I better just keep with the stuff that's going to feed me and uh, not this dream that I have.
1: It's interesting, and that that kind of brings up something I want to ask you about because Frank seems to me to be someone that uh, was always a writer that worked for money. Um, which is, you know, it's, uh, it's a distinction that I think is kind of lost on people outside of the perfection. You know, many, many writers claim they, they write for art, but many more writers, you know, do this because they're looking to put food on their table and, and provide for their family. And Frank, uh, I think you mentioned this kind of in your introduction as well. You note that Frank always made a point of, uh, you know, this was something he did as a, as a vocation, uh, and he worked very hard at it. He was a meticulous researcher. He was, um, a very uh, hard-working kind of nose-to-the-grindstone person that, as you know, really kind of pumped a novel out almost every year. Do you think that had any part in the fact that he now today is a largely forgotten author? Because it, it seems to me sometimes we look at people who are um, jobbing writers and, and writing popular fiction, we somehow put them lower on the totem pole than we would people who, uh, you know, to claim to pursue writing as high art to me there's there's frankly no difference at all you're, you're a writer either way but i right. wonder if frank's reputation suffered because of that because he did uh you know as we've already noted he was the first you know million selling black author in america and he enjoyed very early success was there a backlash to that is that part of the reason why he's kind of fallen out of the canon
2: absolutely um it was part of the reason that um black writers and critics didn't take him terribly seriously Because he made no, um, he didn't make it a secret that he thought that writing was the thing that was going to support him um, in the lifestyle in which he wanted to be living. And so for him, um, the wide readership was much more important at the early part of his career than having uh, the stellar reputation as an artist who only writes for the art of it. Right. Um, And so he wrote popular fiction. Um, Very clearly because he wanted to sell his books. Um, And I don't think that won him any friends uh, among people who thought it was supposed to be about something else. Um, But having said that, um, I think, you know, when you look at his writing, you look at the letters that are in the archive, when you really uh, look at some of the interviews that he gave, What's so striking is that by the time that he was about two-thirds into his career, so maybe the 20-year mark, if you will, um, his attitudes toward his writing changed. And he really did begin to want to produce great literature. Um, and I think it's really sad and and perhaps telling that he wasn't sure that he ever did that. Um, he was working against a lot of very powerful um, pressures to produce the kind of literature that he thought would be sort of critically acclaimed and accepted and reviewed and taught in schools and universities. Uh, by that time he was really a cash cow and people didn't want to see him change his style, right? They didn't want to see him write about different um, genres and write different uh, storylines than had made him so successful. And so I think he, um, he really worked hard to write that kind of a novel and, um, The one is, you know, sort of an interesting and sad story. The one that he thought would kind of make its mark, um, one of them didn't get accepted. um, And so he never published that one. And then the second one that he finally did get out after a lot of editing um, didn't do commercially very well, and so it seemed to have kind of sealed the the fate of well, I guess this is not going to be it for me. Uh, I might as well go back to writing the thing that everybody knows me for. What
1: What was the book that, that came out that was heavily edited that he, he thought was going to be his, his magnum opus? Oh,
2: see, you're going to make me go looking up my notes yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <I> think, <laughs> Come back to me on that one. Was, was that the Dahomian? Was
1: that the Dahomian? Yeah.
2: No, it wasn't Dahomian. Okay. um yeah no it wasn't that one it was another one and the and one that I'll, got re- I'll find it for
3: you the one that got rejected was that the one about the boxer yes
2: yeah yeah I,
3: I would have wait we, we all we're all sports guys here and we all love El <laughs> I would have loved to have read it I would have. <laughs> right loved, he burned I would, it man he loved burned, to read yeah. that boxing novel when it said he burned yeah. it I was like yes, very absolutely. very tragically very tragic.
0: sad well, you know this brings us back to to Veronica's collection um Veronica, the stories that you've compiled, I think there are five that were previous published. And, yes. And then, I, I don't know, maybe 10 or a dozen that were never published before. That's and, correct. And so I, I had never read Frank Yerby before. And when you hear about his, the arc of his life and his career and how he's been represented, it doesn't add up to it doesn't match with reading the short stories because the short stories take this stuff head on. Um, and some of them are from before he, he published novels. So that's right. It's not that he wasn't thinking about the questions that other black writers were thinking about, you know, the James Baldwin's, the Richard Wright's, um, uh, Dorothy West is another, uh, author who's mentioned in there, whose, whose work I haven't read, but, um,
1: Dorothy West is great, by the way.
0: He he made a deliberate choice, well, and it was in a, I forget what interview it was, but he said, you know, he refers to Baldwin as Jimmy. So like he was he was peers with these guys, and he says Jimmy's writing for, uh, he's preaching to the converted, like he's writing for people who already believe what he believes. Like I'm I'm writing for people who who don't know any better and who I'm almost going to trick into seeing another side to this thing. And he, he says he got letters from people who who had that kind of conversion. Um, did you read any of that correspondence? And could you talk a little bit about uh, what it was like to read some of these stories that handled the, the issues of the time directly?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I did read uh, all of the correspondence that's there in the archive in Boston U, as a matter of fact. Um, so you're absolutely right that um, he was peers uh, in, in writing and being very active and actually was was well known um, as an author. Um, you know, while I was saying earlier that he was not respected and, and his work was not taken up by black critics and writers very often, especially not in very flattering ways. Everybody knew who he was and everybody knew how talented he was. And so there's a a wonderful letter in the archive where um, uh, Langston Hughes actually writes a letter to him asking him to send novels, uh, uh, copies of his novels, uh, so that he could send them to Africa. Uh, So he was collecting uh, writing from black writers uh, from all over the place, and he was sending it to Africa. Um, and so, yeah, he was he reached out to Frank Yerby because Frank Yerby was a huge uh, figure uh, in the in the writing scene at that time, even if people didn't necessarily want to take up his work. So um, he is, I think. In terms of his sort of intellectual trajectory, I think we can say that he really wanted to do uh, some great stuff. And I think he just really kind of divorced himself from the uh, scene in the U.S. because he was so disgusted by the politics um, of race in this country. And so once he left and he left for Europe in 1952, uh, although he continued to write about the U.S. Uh, through most of his work, actually. So most of his novels are set in the U.S. and primarily in the South. Uh, but he had left by the 1952, and so his writing back to the U.S. was uh, confrontational. It was meant to raise awareness uh, among people who really didn't know any better, as you said, Um he, Because he wasn't known as a Black writer or a race writer, um, I think a lot of people picked up the novels. They were uh, enjoyable. They were jaunty. Kind of think of them as the Harlequin romances of their time, right? <laughs> so these sort of historical romances that... Uh, were adventurous, and they had handsome men and beautiful women, and, you know, so people were reading them. Um, And he says that he um, sort of infused every one of his novels with a strong defense of Black history. Um, And so that was the way that he saw uh, himself really participating in this political and social effort to end racism and bring about more equality. It wasn't sort of the direct confrontation in your face. It was more Oh, you're reading this story about this white character, and oh, by the way, there's this strong black character who every time he turns around, his life is being saved by this black character. So you got to think about black people a little bit differently when you recognize that this guy that you love is sort of a jerk, and you know he would fail utterly if it weren't for the black people in his life. You know, so there's this way in which uh, the storylines really. Uh, made the point of how significant uh, Black people were to the American enterprise and to into white people um, and to white culture, even though he never said it directly. But you know, it's it's just barely there on the on the underneath, right? It's it's so close to the surface you almost have to be willingly not looking for it in order to not see it.
4: Right.
1: And we're speaking with the editor, Veronica Watson. She's coming to us from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And we've been talking about the author, Frank Yerby, whose short stories she has collected. It's time to actually listen to some of Frank's work. We've got a selection, as always, read... For Us by Shanna Van Volt. Music today provided by Jamie Branch and courtesy of the International Anthem Recording Company. One note on recordings here at I-94, we do not censor material. However, some words we cannot say on the air due to FCC regulations. So if you wish to get the full unexpurgated versions of this, please pick up the book, which is out now from the University Press of Mississippi. We'll be right back after this short excerpt with Veronica Watson. (laughs)
4: The trails going down were steep, but the moonlight was very clear so that he could pick out every twig and every loose stone. Robert went very quietly, from force of habit rather than from any fear, moving as a woods thing moves with grace and surety. Once, when the trail curved sharply, he thought he caught a glimpse of the lake gleaming with the moon silver, but the trees came up out of the blackness and hid it so that the next step he was never quite sure. Then at last the ground was leveling off so that no longer could he merely lift his foot and let himself drop step by half-running step down the trail. Now he had to walk, loping along like a blacker shadow in a world of shadows picked out by the moonlight. And now he could see the lake glimmering through the trees, washed with moonfire. But as he came close, the shimmering was broken by the two great splashes so close that almost they were one splash, the water rising up like white wings and the darkness shattered. Instantly he dropped to his belly and started worming his way through the brush to a place where the rocks were broken through and he could see the water. The silver was dancing crazily, spreading out, out, out on the little wave tops until it broke against the sides of the rocks, mossy green and slimy, and a little lapping. Then a head broke the blackness and another, the moonlight glistening down upon Bear's shoulders. The water glued the hair down to their heads, but even from where he lay, Robert could see that on one head it was long and very fair, streaming down wetly over the neck. Playing out golden net over the bare back as she broke water and swam expertly towards the rocks, a little way from the ones behind which Robert was hiding. She, a girl. Robert drew his breath in sharply. Then they were climbing out upon the rocks in the moonlight. That was almost as bright as day, lying there in the brush the black boy saw that they were naked. He knew then at once that he should be gone, that for him to see this now, he saw, could mean death, and worse, they were so close that he could not move without their hearing. So at first he closed his eyes, the fear in him very deep and dark, clutching at his throat from the inside so that his breath was a choking tangle burning in his lungs. But then he opened them again. The girl was standing up and running fingers through her long golden hair, pushing it out and back away from her shoulders. And her whiteness was like the mountain laurel, or more like the dog would when you've been wandering all day through the green woods and round a turn, finding it there, leaping out at you, a cool seafoam blaze of white, stopping your breath suddenly. Watching, unable to turn his eyes away, Robert saw how it was with the young girl, everything with a softness and a roundness, in spite of the sapling slimness and colt-like length of limb. He lay very still, measuring out his breath into the air so that there would be no noise, but then the girl turned, and the droplets of water still clinging to the fair skin caught the light glittering like diamonds. He stood up suddenly, recklessly and all the little loose stones slid out from under his feet and cascaded off the bigger rocks into the water, making little silver splashes. The white boy was on his feet at the same instant facing him, and Robert was staring into a face he knew almost as well as he knew his own. "'Joey!' the girl cried, doubled up grotesquely. "'He saw us!' "'What you doin' here?' the boy demanded. "'You dirty spying black bastard!' "'I ain't spying, Joey,' Robert said i just come to... But the white boy hit him then, hard across the mouth, so that his full lips broke against his teeth and his tongue was hot and salt with blood taste. "'Don't hit me, Joey,' Robert pleaded. "'I ain't gonna tell. I swear for God.' "'You're damn right you ain't gonna tell. You won't never get out of here alive.' Robert's fist came up then, blocking the white boy's blows, riding the punches, ducking under them, bobbing, wheeling, sidestepping. And the girl watching, forgetting to hide her secret body with her hands, whispered to herself, He's seen me. Like this he's seen me. God Almighty. Then, suddenly, all the fear was gone from Robert as though it never was. And he struck out in a fury, hooking Joey's head from left to right to left again. Then he sent his fist whistling into the white boy's stomach, and Joey went down abruptly upon the rocks. The black boy wheeled then and started to run, scrambling across the rocks. But the girl dived into the bushes where their clothes were and came out with the bottle. "'Here!' she cried. "'He's seen me! Don't let him get away!' The rocks there were steep, and Robert had to turn and twist. Joey waited until he was scaling the side of one a few yards away, and then he ran up close and threw the bottle, turned over end by end, catching the moonlight gleaming silver. Then it crashed against the side of Robert's head in a bright shower, and afterwards came the blood. His hands clawed briefly against the rock, and he dropped down into the tall grass. The pair approached him, shivering a little in the rising wind. Is he dead? Yeah, I reckon so. Come on, get your clothes on. We gotta get the hell out of here. They went back toward the lake, and afterwards clearly came the rustle of garments. Robert lay very still until he could hear their footsteps going down. Then he was up, pressing his hand to his head where the hot, sticky ooze was slowing and stumbled blindly up the trail.
1: And that was a short excerpt from Veronica Watson's new collection of the short stories of Frank Yerby. That was actually a selection from the short story, Roads Going Down, which had been a previously published work of Frank's. Veronica, that is a pretty uh, brutal story in a lot of ways. Uh, As you just heard from the reading, our our hero has just uh, been hit in the head with a bottle and left for dead. Uh, and he's going to get worse as the story goes on. Could you talk a little bit about this story? Because the the tenor of Frank's stories change as his life progresses. But this was very solidly in a strain of short fiction and, and fiction overall, where he was
2: confronting racial issues in America. Sure. Um, so the, the early work of Frank, um, I think, is probably the most um, direct and politically engaged, as we would kind of talk about it these days, of all of the short stories that we would read. It's not that he didn't continue to write about them, um, to write about black characters, but the the kind of fiction that we would recognize as sort of racial protest that sort of into your face direct here's what black Americans face every day that was in his earlier uh, work um, especially before he published his first novel, the Foxes of Harrow. So um this story is really, you know telling um the giving that real glimpse of what it means um to live as a, Racially marked person in America uh, for most of the 20th century. Right, it is about the violence that uh, Black people experience. It is about the impact of that violence on their personal lives and on their uh, it, on their personal lives with their loved ones. Um, It is talking about the limitations that they experience in all aspects of their social life, from the ability to go out um, and and have a nice dinner to um, being able to get a job or to serve in the military, right? So so all of those things are sort of uh, surfaced there. And we really see the suffering Um, that this character experiences as a result of these limitations being put on his life at every single turn Um, and then how he has to shape his own identity both in response to that but also against that right that it's a reality he has to live with but he also has to figure out how to be the person that he understands himself to be even in the face of all of this opposition
3: well in the in in the introduction that that you wrote you mentioned that he was arrested and beaten and hospitalized for walking with his sister eleanor and that really right. hit and, and that really hit me when i was reading the story because i was you know, the, you know the parallels are there it's not exactly the same thing but just to be his right. sister was light skinned and um, you know just to be beaten you know for walking down that th- apparently it was against the law for a black male to be walking with a white woman. And when I read that, I mean, that was one of the, it's, you know, we read about all this stuff about racism and institutionalized racism and the things that go on in this country and the stuff that we see. But, you know, something like that, it was just, it, it really hit me hard as as I was reading that story. And I also wanted to, uh, we had a, a writer here that we're all big fans of named Willard Motley who also wrote about mm-hmm. He also uh, – his big book, Knock on Any Door, was about right. a, a white kid kind of gone bad. But I wanted to bring up the story. I, um, we're all fans of, uh, like, Southern gritlet and the quality of courage. I mean, that could have been written yeah. now. And, and the and he the way that he writes those characters and that story, it's about a hurricane where a, a young man's father is killed. And it, you kind of delve into this, like, seedy Southern white criminal culture and it was I, I, when i was reading that i was like this could be published today this is an absolutely okay. oh his
0: his range is un- unbelievable yeah. yeah
3: i mean i was there was so you know just to to go from this you know story about this kid you know beaten for seeing white people making out to this other story about these you know poor it's, it's w-
1: a noir really I yeah mean, it it's like is. a walter mosley noir. noir
3: it's like a yeah. it, it's like no. gritlit noir which is a, both things i'm a big fan of and i was just it, his as mike said his range is phenomenal it's unbelievable yeah yeah and yeah that's
2: one of the things that i really wanted to do with the collection of short stories because most people know him as a novelist who wrote one kind of literature and, and so you know if you've read 20 of his 33 novels you might have hit the 20 that are all kind of of the same ilk And the short stories are so amazingly diverse, right? So as you're pointing out, you have crime stories, you have ghost stories, you have um, you have these southern um, sort of realism tales of black life and then you have things that are said in the south of france and you know you have things that feel like spy novels you have um, eulogies i mean so everything under the sun there's a wonderful thing that i remember reading in the archive where frank said he could make a, a phone book interesting and I, I, I you know kind of coming out of the end of this i went yes you absolutely could cuz <laughs> I would read that phone book from you. Yes, okay. I would.
1: <laughs> well, you are listening right now to I-94. It's about that time to remind folks of the people that make this station possible. We are speaking with Veronica Watson. She has edited these short stories of Frank Yerby. Veronica, you're not going anywhere, right? We've got a, you for another half hour.
2: I'm going to stay with you.
1: Beautiful. Right after the break, folks, we're in fact going to play another selection from the uh, collection that Veronica's put together. We're going to hear a selection from My Brother Went to College. When we come out after the break, we'll talk a little more about this. Once again, you're listening to I-94. This is WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpin' Radio.
4: And now back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. Where you going, pretty brown? Home, I laughed. Home. Come on up and I'll give you luck show. Two ways for a dollar. Come on up, pretty brown. Hell, I said. I'm black and I sure ain't pretty and what you got ain't worth no dollar. Leave me be, sister. I'm going home. I went around the last corner very slow, making the pleasure last. And there was the old shop just like I left it, only a little more run down, maybe. Then my heart stopped beating altogether because of the man hammering away at the thick, mostly cardboard half soles, sure Lord wasn't father or even the half of him. I walked in the door and I asked him where Deacon Johnson was who used to keep this shop, and he looked up at me and said He dead. Mighty near six years now since he was laid to rest. And I sat down weakly on one of the high stools. And his son? Matt Johnson? I asked. Oh, he here all right. He Dr. Mac Johnson now. Finished up his schooling at Mo House and taken up medicine at me, Harry. Fine man, Dr. Johnson. He my doctor. Other night I was taken with misery in my. Where he live? I demanded. I got to see him. Way across town, over there on Westmoreland Drive. What's the matter with you, son? Is you sick? No, nah, I said. No, nah, I ain't sick. I'm ever so much obliged to you, mister. When I left town 10 years before, only white people lived on Westmoreland Drive and big shots at that, so I wasn't at all sure that the new cobbler wasn't stringing me. But that other part sounded all right. All that about the schooling and being a doctor and all, that was just like Matt. There wasn't one place to look for him, and that was at the top. That's the way Matt was. It took me more than half an hour to get over to Westmoreland Drive. I had to go past five points and through all city traffic, and after 10 years I wasn't exactly clear as to where it was. But I reached it at last and stood on the corner looking down the shaded street at all the big brick houses sitting high on their green terraces with the automobile driveways curving up and around them. And I drew in my breath and let it out again, one big whoosh. Then I went to the first house and rang the bell. A young girl came to the door. She had brown skin and soft black hair that curled down over her shoulders. She was so doggone pretty that I couldn't get my mouth shut. Yes? She said. Yes? Dr. Johnson, I said. Dr. Matthew Johnson, do we live here? No, she said. He lives four houses down on the other side. Then she smiled at me. I wanted to stand there and just look at her, but then I saw my rusty shoes and worn out fringes at the bottom of my britches, so I mumbled, thank you, ma'am, and went back down the walk to the street. I stood in front of my brother's house a long time before I got up the nerve to climb up the incline walk to the door. It was just about the biggest and the best-looking house on the street. Matt had got somewhere. He had. I pushed on the bell button and held my breath. Then the door popped open and a young woman, prettier and angel out of glory, and so light-complexioned that I looked at her three times and still wasn't sure, stuck her head out and said, "'Good evening?' "'How'd you do?' I said. "'Is Matt home?' "'Yes,' she said. Her voice was puzzled. "'Whom shall I tell him is calling?' Just tell him Mark, I said, he'll know. She went back in the house, leaving me standing there like a fool. The sunlight slanted through the shade trees on the walk, where it hit the leaves and made a kind of blaze. Then it came through and touched the side of the house, making it a kind of salmon pink. I heard Matt's big feet come hammering through the hall. The door banged open and there he was, as big as life, and twice as handsome. He had on a dark blue suit that must have cost plenty and his hair was close cut to his skull so that the kink didn't show so much. His black face was shaven, steamed, and massaged until the skin was like black velvet. He took the pipe out of his mouth and stood there staring at me, his Adam's apple bobbing up and down like the collar of his silk shirt. Then he grinned and said, Mark, you crazy little bastard. I put out my horny paw and he took it and wrung it almost off. I was ashamed of myself because of all the time I had been standing there thinking that maybe he wouldn't want to see me now, but I should have known better. Matt wasn't like that at all. He took me by the arm, rags and all, and drew me inside the house. It was a palace. I had seen houses like that in movies, but nobody could have made me believe that there was a black man anywhere who owned one. The rugs were so soft and deep that they came up to my ankles, and the combination radio phonograph filled up half of one wall. Sitting in one of the huge chairs was a light girl, and with her were two fat, copper-brown children with soft brown hair, almost the same color as their skins, curling all over their little heads. I just stood there and couldn't say a word. It came to me then that Matt had done what I had tried to do and he had done it the right way. He would built himself a world and he was free. I had run away from everything and slept in the open fields hunting for something and Matt had stayed home and fought for the same thing and he had gotten it. I felt less than two inches high.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of I-94. My name is Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. Mr. Michael Sack is also with us. Howdy. And you just heard a selection from the short stories of Frank Yerby, written, of course, by Frank Yerby. We are joined today by the editor of that collection, Veronica Watson. This is a new book out from the University Press of Mississippi. Veronica, thanks so much for putting up with us, guys. We really appreciate it.
2: Oh, well, I'm enjoying it.
1: We just heard uh, that selection from My Brother Went to College, and uh, that's an interesting story to me because it seemed to be going a little bit deeper into the possibilities that black americans had at the time as well as the pitfalls black americans faced the story is about a young man who had left home he comes back to find that his father's died but he also comes back to find that his brother is now a doctor and has a house as you heard in a a very fine area of town can you talk a little bit about the kind of social uh, politics and social milieu that, that Frank was talking about that existed at this time? Sure. Um,
2: this, this story, I think, is probably very close to the first novel that didn't get published, where he was really looking at the lives of middle-class black Americans, uh, which didn't have a lot of play, right? It wasn't the story that most of America wanted to hear or read at the time. And so this story really explores um, what are the the challenges of being in the Black middle class? Um, how do they understand their racial identity, if if that is a part of their identity that they're claiming and embracing? And what is it that they have to sacrifice in order to kind of live in that space? And this story is really interesting because the brother who's become the doctor, you know, they have this wonderful scene at the end between he and his brother who's returned, who's really been on the road, right? He's been a nomad. He's kind of hung out where he wanted to, and he's had a a very rich and entertaining life, let's say. Uh, And so when they reunite, and at the end, they're both professionals, um, his brother says to him, you know, I need you to go out and get a straight razor for me. And his brother's like, they both laugh about it. And it's like, well, why didn't you get a straight razor for all of these years? And he's like, you know, I couldn't do that. And there's just this really kind of poignant moment of recognition that he's had to give up something uh, that seems so simple, the, the freedom to be able to go out and buy a straight razor without a fear that that's going to stereotype you or people are going to become afraid of you and stop patronizing your business or stop visiting you. You know, that somehow the, the simple act of buying the razor that you prefer to use is going to change the way that you're seen and i've always thought that that story i mean they laugh about it but it's it's truly one of the saddest moments that you can imagine right um his humanity has been so shrunken that he can't do something as simple as go to the pharmacy and buy his own razor without fear that it's going to have professional repercussions and that he's going to be seen differently
0: hmm. you know, we were talking about range before the break and the last couple of stories in your collection deal with anti-semitism
2: mm-hmm. and um
0: you know i found uh his writing about that experience pretty pretty impressive yeah. um and it made me think of there's another book that came out this year about frank it's called rediscovering frank yerby it's a collection of different essays veronica has a has a essay in there and in the introduction there's there's a quote from an interview that that frank had with a guy named i think james hill yes and they're talking about this this uh Racial Identification of Writers and How Silly Frank Thinks It Is. And he makes a point about two French writers. Do you, do you remember what it was? He He was talking about Dumas and uh, de Maupassant, uh, two French writers. You and uh, Dumas, so he said, I thought it was really interesting, and it, it is the kind of thing that I think might not fly today. But um, he said, you know, Dumas was, was black, but he never wrote once about a black character so would we right. would we call him a white writer um yeah and and de Maupassant wrote vigorously about the defense of black people would we call mm-hmm. and he was a white man would we, would we call him a black writer and you know that's one of the things it over and over all the things i read about frank like he's just a guy a writer that i wish was around today it would probably drive him crazy the the current climate <laughs> But yes. uh, <laughs> was that was that on your mind when you were going through all this stuff? That he, he just had such a massive mind and an ability to empathize in this in our you know a so called culture of empathy that doesn't really seem to display it the way that someone like him does. Yeah. Um, it'd be nice to have him around.
2: Yeah, I, I think he'd have some very poignant and uh, insightful things to offer to us in this moment, sort of like James Baldwin, right? Um, so. The land of Pilgrim's Pride is the story that we were starting with, talking about uh, anti-Semitism, right? And and I believe that Frank had uh, a tremendous. It's it's interesting to me because I think he he had a tremendous love for human beings, um, and nothing hurt him and turned his stomach more than to see human beings. Uh, being detestable to one another, right? And so he just, he sort of exited himself from just about everything. I think he, he was pretty close to a recluse. He, he had a very small circle of family and friends that he interacted with once he moved to, um, to Europe. And, um, you know, so his writing became his way of engaging people and, and making people think or offering moments where they could think and reflect on, um, as has been said, man's inhumanity to man. Right. And um, so those moments are really uh, created in his in his pieces as invitations for us to. Uh, think about our own positions and, and how we treat other people and what we think about other people and and how our society is structured um, in ways that harm other people. Uh, that's throughout all of his short stories. Um, all of them really invite us to think about what it means to be human and to be human with other humans, right? And so in, in that way, it's a really, because he was, he was I think he was kind of cantankerous. I don't think he was very pleasant to be around. I think he had a very sharp wit and and he didn't take a lot of BS from people. So, you know, in, in some ways he was very impatient with people. But at the same time, um, I think his stories uh, do more of the work that we need to have in this world, which is really to create these spaces where we can think about how we treat each other and how we can do that differently and better.
0: It's interesting that we talk about it in him in his personal life, because that that distinction is made more than ever now. You know, to, uh, the 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 person and 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 the art itself. In the introduction, you mentioned uh, working with his children uh, mm-hmm. to publish some of this material from the estate, and that seemed like something of a contentious relationship. Uh, yes. Did did did, did you want to talk at all about that? Yes. Yes. <laughs>
2: It, it is um, it is continuing uh, to be such an interesting part of this journey because, you know, I came I came to this work uh, when I was working on my first book. I found Frank's work and someone told me, hey, read The Fox of a Hero. It's fun. It's interesting. You, you'll love it. Right. And, and this was just something I was reading as a, a piece of downtime at the end of a long semester. So it was supposed to be. The, the relaxing part of my, my world. Um, and it turned into this project where I was going to the archives to see and learn more about this man, which is how I found the stories. Um, but when I was there at the archives the first time, that's when I was told that, um, you know, who's, whose name is on the archive. And it's, it's one of his children, his, his son Jacques. And, um, and I, it took me about six months before I could find any information on Jacques because Jacques didn't have any interactions with the archive. Um, His name was on it as the permission holder, but they hadn't been in touch with him. He wasn't sending anything. They weren't sending anything to him. So um, when I finally did get in touch with him, that's when he found out that his name was on that archive. It was the first time that he knew. So that tells you a little bit about uh, the distance that had happened between uh, father and son and father and family here in the U.S., Um, his I think his aunt, um, his sister's name was on the archive originally. I think as she was getting older, uh, she put Jacques's name on the archive and perhaps he knew but didn't know or had forgotten. But it had been years um, and he he didn't know. Well, so, wait, how, how did he how did his archive
1: end up in Massachusetts anyway? That was something that was kind of curious to me. Why? Yeah, were- he
2: actually set that up. Um, I'm not sure why there, other than maybe someone approached him uh, and said, hey, we'd like to have your archive because you're a prominent black writer of the time and we probably like the kind of stuff that you're writing and we're starting this new archive here at Boston U. Uh, There's a a letter in the archive at um, Payne College, which was his uh, alma mater also. And um, the archive there uh, holds a letter where Yerby was writing back to the then president of the college, uh, who had apparently asked him on several occasions to house the archive. Right, so hey Frank, you're you're our alum. Give us your materials. Right, we'd love to hold them. And the letter is saying, no, sorry, I can't do that. Primarily because Payne doesn't have the money to maintain this archive. It takes you know, certain kind of security and it takes a certain kind of uh, climate control. and, And our college just doesn't have that kind of money, first of all. But second of all, I've already promised this archive to Boston U. And so that's where uh, you know that he has actually made the arrangement to have all of his manuscripts sent there. Otherwise, I think it would be an open question, why Boston U? But we know he did it.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. And just as a small personal note, I believe that is also where my mom's archive is. And I believe they reached out in the 1980s or 1990s, and they were putting together a new writer's archive. So I'm wondering wow. if that was in the same thing. It, it just occurred to me. I hadn't realized it was at BU. And my mother, who listens to this show, will probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm—I believe her <laughs> papers are at BU. Okay. Um, so that—that that could be it. It could have been, as you mentioned, just a college trying to sweep up writers, uh, yeah. of all of all stripes and kinds.
3: I wanted to talk uh, next, Veronica, about the story, the homecoming. Yes. Um, I'm a veteran, and. I'm often perplexed by the way the politicians portray veterans as this big brotherhood that everyone takes care of and you know you, you know the you know the routine and the, and really the propaganda yeah. to be totally honest but this story is about uh, a sergeant coming back from World War II a changed man had been in many battles and basically treated the you know to the white folks where he grew up he was the same lesser person i I don't know how else to say it when he returns but it starts out him getting dirty looks at the train station um and then he i don't want to totally ruin the story for those who are going to read it but, (laughs) but his interactions with the colonel and i've always found it fascinating i was in the artillery there wasn't in the unit that i was in a lot of racism and i was also in the middle east for a year and i was with a lot of black guys and I think our situation was so bad, it was just kind of one of those things where it's like, we're all in this together because this is like an absolute world of suck, as we used to call it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, this this story hit me. And, uh, you know, we have this, um, I I don't know even how else to describe it besides propaganda in this country where, you know, veterans are taken care of. They're these heroes. And 25% of homeless people are veterans Uh, 75% of combat veterans end up with substance abuse problems and there's this guy that put his life online for the country and he comes back and he's treated like a second class citizen I I just wanted to talk to you about your thoughts on I know that was common and I also just wanted to get your take on that story as well.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um... The, the homecoming is one of those stories that I think will feel very familiar to people who, as um, you're pointing out, who have military background, but also uh, who are of the generation who served in World War I, II, um, Because uh, I think that the propaganda that you're talking about, um, you know, I think a lot of Black Americans understand has never been true for us, right? I mean, it's it's never been a narrative that we brought into. Uh, When black men came back from World War II, they were killed for being in uniform. Um, They were taken off of trains and beaten and blinded and lynched. Uh, That's the history that black Americans know about military service. Uh, We put our lives on the line and our country uh, absolutely hates us. Um, and so, you know, Frank, being the writer that he is, of course, is is going to take that up. And he took up the the issue of military service for black men um, in several stories. Um, and so he he was wide eyed about this, and it was something that he, uh, I think, was very passionate about. Uh, I, I learned after uh, continued to be in touch with uh, the family and continued to learn about Frank's life, and. Um, and have recently found that uh, the the family lore is that uh, Frank's first wife uh, kept him from military service. Now I don't know if that means that uh, he wanted to enlist and she prevented it, or he didn't want to. And uh, and we now have a letter that surfaced that shows that he was uh, being drafted, and she wrote very actively uh, to have uh, that um, inscription. Uh, put aside. And so he didn't end up going in, even though he was being called up. Uh, So there there are all kinds of ways in which I think Frank really thought about military service for Black Americans with one question on the mind, which is, what is in it for us? Why are we, the people who are uh, being murdered and lynched and Um, you know, second-class citizens in our country, why are we stepping up to serve in the military uh, and to fight foreign wars against Black and brown people very often? Um, And on the one hand, I think the answer to that question was that uh, military service was, for, for right or for wrong, seen as a pathway to citizenship. It was sort of the implicit argument that we're willing to fight for our country, and therefore our country owes us certain uh, inalienable rights, and we're going to claim those through military service. And so, I think it had a political edge to it in that way. But I think the other truth of it was that for uh, a person of Frank's generation, military service was seen as the way to manhood. Yeah, it was the way to really establish yourself, uh, to begin to support yourself when there were very few other jobs that might be available. Um, it was the way to. Um, kind of see what kind of man you were right you, you became a person who could defend yourself you became a person who um, knew how to navigate systems you became a person who had certain connections and you know knew how to dress sharply and to present himself you know so all of those things were kind of tied up into military service for uh, the generation. and in fact all, all of my folks in my family are military so my my father, my grandfather, My uh, two brothers uh, served in the military, and so I know that for them, it was all about this is how you become a man. Um, um, and my so, family
3: is very similar my stepbrother my sister yeah. we, we, we yeah. have a lot of folks in the military Yeah,
1: my, my family as well many many people veronica we're running out of time here uh thank you so much first of all for spending part of your day with us here on 994 and with chicago radio listeners we really appreciate it we have been speaking uh with veronica wilson she's the author of watson's short... watson's Watson. <laughs> trifocals are terrible for trying to catch up with this stuff uh the short stories of frank yerby uh, it's out now from the university of mississippi press can you just real Quickly talk about what you do in your own
2: career and what you've got coming up. Sure, um, I am continuing my work on Frank, as you might have imagined. Uh, I continue to be fascinated by him, and there's a lot that we don't yet know, and so we're still trying to figure out and, and fill in holes. So that's part of my work, and, and uh, I've been turning my attention here more recently to black crime and detective fiction. So nice. beginning to do some work with that. That's yeah. great stuff.
1: Yeah. We're big fans of Walter Mosley, and uh, for those, Chester Himes is yes, my, 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 my guy. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> I did want to say too before we close, Veronica. Thank you so much for putting this collection together. It was uh, a, oh, such an awesome discovery. It was a great, yeah, a great dive. discovery. It was a great diamond. Oh, thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. And, and it's really such a that. such an across the board uh, viewpoints of the world. And I think, I hope. That, you know, Yerby gets the readership that he deserves because... uh... Again, the
1: readership he deserves again. Again. (laughs) Again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we always like to give uh, the authors the last word. We're going to close with a reading from uh, a story called The Schoolhouse of Kumpwer Antoine. Veronica, thank you so much again. Have a great rest of your day. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us here on I-94 once again. Thanks, Veronica. Thank you. Thank you.
4: When the Yankee gunboats ran past the guns in Port Jackson and St. Philip and anchored off Canal Street in the pouring rain, it made very little difference to Compere Antoine. He was already an old man, and although as black as the shoes he cobbled, he had always been free. He went on singing very softly to himself in his native gumbo patois, and making the tenth or twelfth repair upon the dainty shoes of Creole ladies who before the war had been able to throw away a pair of shoes every fortnight. The only other difference was that now the ladies could not pay for repairs, but Compere Antoine made them just the same. The ladies said, God bless you, Compere, and some of them gave him huge bundles of Confederate money for which the old man thanked them politely and took home and papered the walls of his little house down on Rampart Street with it, for that was all it was good for now. On the day that the gunboats arrived, however, Compere Antoine closed his little shop. It would have been very dangerous to keep it open. The crowds of white men were running through the streets of New Orleans and smashing the windows of all the shops and setting them on fire. Down on the levee, thousands of bales of cotton were burning so that the whole sky was blotted out by the billowing smoke and the wine and molasses were running through the cypress-lined gutters of the banquets like water. Some of the Negroes had buckets and were dipping up the wine by the pailful and drinking it just as fast so that by night they were all drunk and happy while the whole waterfront blazed. Compere Antoine stole through the roaring streets like a black ghost. He was looking for his five tall sons and fearing that by now they had all drunk their bellies full of wine and had gotten to trouble. He searched all night and by morning he had rounded them up, yanking them for the most part from the sides of comely mulatto wenches and booting them soundly down the street before him. The fact that they were all tall stalwart blacks who could have broken him in half with one hand apparently never occurred to either him or them for they went along sheepishly with never a cross word. The cobbling business was very bad for the next five days, so Compier Antoine spent them all in the streets trying vainly to keep up with his boys. Being a simple man, it never occurred to him that these five days were history. He was present when W.V. Mumford hauled down the federal flag from above the Mint, and he ran with the mob when the Pensacola opened with her main-top howitzer. The shooting was very bad, but it was the first time that the old man had ever heard cannon fire, other than the curfew guns of his youth. it sound different when it's aimed at you, yes,' he said." and thereafter he avoided crowds. But something of the excitement of the day was gradually working within him. Old as he was, he limped along the banquets over the entire parade route when General Butler's troops marched into New Orleans on the 1st of May. Down the levee they went with Compier Antoine and all his boys trying to keep step beside them. They turned into Poitras Street with the Negroes swollen into a mob singing and cheering beside them. On Poitras to St. Charles, down St. Charles, past the St. Charles Hotel to Canal, and on Canal to Custom Street House, and Compier Antoine kept up with them all the way. After that, life was never the same for Compierre Antoine. His oldest boy, Jean, who like all Compierre Antoine's son could read and write, got mixed up in politics. But the old man never got used to the smooth white men who came around to his little shop and called him Mr. instead of Compier, which in New Orleans was a title roughly equivalent to that uncle that Southern whites called old colored men to this day. They tried to buy his vote or pay him to influence other Negroes who listened to him when he spoke or came to him for advice. But Compère Antoine wouldn't sell. He asked the opinions of Oscar J. Dunn, a black man whom even the Democrats admitted was incorruptible, or of Anton Dubuclay, a Creole mulatto whose books, after he became state treasurer, were examined and re-examined without anyone's finding a penny out of the way, even through error. And he read the Bible of the Louisiana Negroes, the New Orleans Tribune. Owned by the Rudinez brothers of San Domingo and edited by the brilliant black man Paul Trevine, who spoke seven languages, but he had no dealings with Pinchback. He too near white him, Compierre declared. Can't be honest. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's Books and Literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Veronica T. Watson, editor of a new collection of stories by the late Frank Gerby, out now from the University of Mississippi Press. This episode originally aired on August 6, 2020, which was also Jamie's birthday. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM archive. For more information on i94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin Radio, visit com.